Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Petra Valentová. It's a very Czech pronunciation. Petra, Petra, very, yeah, you need to put it at strong R. And Valentová with accent to Onová, right? So. But I've also seen Gupta. Yes. My husband is from Rajasthan, India. And I mean, there are reasons why I didn't take Gupta as a legal name, mainly because we are both immigrants in the US. And when we got married, we were on different visas, different passports. And we also had a perspective of long process of applying for a green card and eventually citizenship. There would be so many forms that I would have to change. And <laughs> to make life easier, I never took his last name. I stay with Petra Valentova, but I am using Gupta as my artistic name often because a lot of my work, I would say majority of my work in practice lately, has been influenced by the culture, by Indian culture, and by by living in a multicultural environment. That's why Gupta as a name is very important to me. So yes, you can find me under Gupta as well. Because you have a very interesting um, mix of cultures in your life because you you are from the Czech Republic, your husband is from India, but you all live in the United States. So like, how did that all happen? Oh my gosh, it's such a long, long story. I got I think when I was 11, I was, and I will start with a, with a childhood and a children's dream. When I was 11, I think approximately, and it was still deep communism. Let's think about it. My uncle in Pardubice, which is in Eastern Czech Republic, about 100 kilometers east of Prague, my uncle had a map of New York above his sofa. And I stood there and looked at it, and I was thinking, oh my God, this is the place I want to live at. And I don't know how this came. I always had a dream of being somewhere else. I think as eight year old, I was dreaming about Australia and somehow I ended up in New York. But it's somehow the place captured me. I didn't know anything about New York and about US, but New York depicted through the pop culture and through what information I got, somehow really, really intrigued me. So when I was studying at the Academy of Fine Arts, I got an opportunity to be one of the first students at the Cooper Union. And me and Františka Ševčíková were first exchange students for a semester at the Cooper Union. And that's how I started. Well, actually, it's not necessarily the truth because I started in I came for the first time to New York in 1997 when I was working for Czech-born American artist Pavel Kraus. And he had few exhibitions in Prague at that time. He was looking for an assistant. I started helping him, and then I started helping him with exhibitions in New York. But my real, real entrance to the world in New York was through the exchange program at Cooper Union in 1999, 2000. So that's how I ended up there. And then from that, it went to my studies through Academy of Fine Arts, which, which I finished. And then knowing New York, I applied for a Fulbright scholarship at a Fulbright. I did my second MFA at Hunter College, CUNY. And in the last semester, I met my husband, who also came to do his master's program in Chicago. And somehow we've met, and somehow we both ended up here, living this very multicultural, multinational life. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> I, mean, I thought I was you know, very expat by being an American in Europe, but you were truly sort of transcontinental in your sort of uh, relationships so now the the influence of the czech republic in india is very strong in your artwork like i looked through and was looking through the like, your blue textiles works and the the relationships between india and czech republic but you still live in america while you're doing this work so like how did that all work because do you spend time in india like live there for like six months a year kind of thing how do you how are you handling all that 
I was traveling heavily before strange events of last year and lockdowns. And yes, so my work is heavily dependent on personal relationships, both in the Czech Republic and India. It also works well with my family. I have two kids, ages nine and 11, and I wanted them to be very much connected to both cultures equally. And I mean, going to Czech Republic was easy, but going to India with very strong family relationships and hierarchy was kind of not difficult, but it had its issues. And therefore, I was looking for a way to be an active participant in a culture and not just daughter and sister-in-law that sort of had to comply with certain culture customs. So I was looking for something to do and being a creative person, I was looking for expanding my tools and my practice and the way how to actively participate. So I started looking and I discovered block printing. To answer your question is, yes, I was traveling heavily to show my children the culture. Therefore, the trips were sort of were already set up. Like I knew that every year I go at least once a, once a year to Czech Republic and once a year to India for my children to show them the cultures and be in touch with the family. And as a side, part of that became my work. I became more involved with people on both sides because I really wanted to do something while I am in both countries. Does it answer your question? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, what that, and then you got involved with, as you mentioned, with block printing. I mean, block printing is, you know, has a long tradition in both Europe and Asia. Is, is India referred to as Asia? Am I getting that right? I always get yes. scared. Okay, good. <laughs> Well, it's a subcontinent, right? India is a it's a it's a world on its own, and it has its own time zone, which is really interesting because it has ten point yeah it has a half an hour time zone. Of course, it does. Yes. <laughs> Why not? But, now, but you mentioned your your husband's family. Do they have a particular religion that they practice? Yeah, they're Hindus, but they're more. I would say that they're very open minded, and I think that allowed me to become a part of the family and have nothing than respect for my mother-in-law and for my family and their activism and their involvement in community's life. So in a way, it seems that me and my husband have nothing in common. But when you go really deeper, I think we have a lot in common that we share similar beliefs, similar ethical practices. All right. And this concern about ethical practices is involved in your work itself also with your work in India and all this. So please, you know, give me a little primer on sort of like what your concepts behind your work is. So I started as a sculptor. Actually, I started in restoration of sculptures initially. Then I started figurative sculpture and I ended up in multimedia and more conceptual work. What is behind my work is usually an idea, a concept that I very strongly believe in. So when I started working with block printers, I sort of became very involved with indigenous printing communities who belong to one of the poorer societies or poorer people in within the Indian society. And I felt that we are taking, that we are applying a lot of power position when working with them. And we are sort of continuing our colonial or post in within the colonial practices of, you know, coming to India or to, to a printing community and saying, I know what people like and I know what the design is and I know what I what you should do and and uh, you should do this and this and this because this is the aesthetics that that is right and your aesthetics is not is traditional but my aesthetics is the is sophisticated and, and right one and I think that was really really bothering me so I started looking more into how to involve people and how to really work 
with them ethically, but also very empathetically. I think empathy is the word that I would use as a centerpiece of my of my practice. So I started building up my work around collaborative design, about collaboration. I'd say I would emphasize the words collaboration and empathy as a centerpieces of my work. Therefore, I started getting to know the community better, getting to know them on personal level, listening to them, questioning what are their dreams, what are their practices, how is their day, how is how is the whole life within the community, within the village. And I came up with, I mean, it's nothing new, but I came up with with approach that included collaboration. So I started working with a set of workshops when I was more like a medium, a curator of the creative processes. And me and a 10 or 11 women from the printing community in Bagru, which is in Rajasthan, not very far away from Jaipur, through the series of workshops, put together designs that represented them, that were based on their work, on their creative thinking. And this is basically the center of my practice. I don't want to come up with my own designs. I want to be a medium creator for the voice, for the for the women craftsmen and artisans and, and help them and allow them to create their own work and their designs that brings creativity back to the to the process, to their work. Yes, so my work is about collaborating with people and giving them voice. And rather than putting my ego up front, really being more a medium. But the art world is all about our egos. Yes, it is. And that's why I am sort of on the side and I'm not in a mainstream and I am keeping my invisibility because I learn through many painful experiences that I don't want to put my ego there. And I disagree with ego-based process just for me, like for me, it just makes me happier. It would probably make all of us happier if we could somehow <laughs> get ego out of the involvement. But well, I mean, what kind of experiences are you talking about that sort of turned you away from the arts world? I mean, there's so many things like over-creation, like we just create so much of stuff and where all that stuff goes and what's going to happen with it. I think that's 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 one of the things. Lack of humility, and that's another thing. It's just, <laughs> to me, art is about a personal growth. It's a something that I sign up for. That's something that is important to me, to grow as an artist, to learn, to develop. I think that's the centerpiece of me and my art career, not how many people see it. How much does it get outside? Of course, it's nice to get a feedback, but it's not necessary. It's really a way at the end of the line of what's important and why it's important to me. It's really about the development, self-development, self-growth, learning curve. I'm all about all of the things you just said. However, the one side of that that fascinates me the most is how do you make a living doing that? So that, of course, gets complicated too with a family structure. So when I was a student, I always, or even after school, I always supported myself. I worked either in a restoration or I worked for many years at a small New York gallery on Upper East Side, where I'm actually working again now. When I was a student at Hunter College, I had like five jobs. I worked in a bar, illegally, of course, and at a table like everybody else on a well-known, famous Ladlow Street when Lower East Side was still Lower East Side. And it was cool. And it was just at the beginning of gentrification. I worked at a sculpture studio, I worked at a gallery, I was cleaning apartments and I did something else, I don't even know what. But I was able to pay my school, I was able to pay my studio and I was able to pay even going to Czech Republic once a year or twice a year. So of course, when I was responsible for myself, it was much easier. 
Now, life got a little bit more complicated because it's a family structure and I married a husband who whose job got more and more demanding and complicated. And What industry does he work in? Oh, he's an investment banker. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, he is, a, yeah, the Wall Street guy. Probably some lovely suits, right? Nice ties. He works in a pajama these days. As we all do. As we all do, yes, of course. But, I mean, there are a lot of misconceptions about this kind of work. He's not that shiny type that you can see in TVs or whatever. He's really very professional, very involved in his industry. I have nothing than respect for the way how he works with his clients and how he's devoted to his career. So it's it's really demanding and hardworking job and it's not all flashy and shiny as we can see. But of course it gives the stability to us and it's a certain social contract that I entered through you know the years. So I do not have to support myself but I do everything else. Like he is doing the work and I do everything else and raise the kids and make sure that they survive this pandemic and, and everything else. So yes, it is a little bit cliche, I would say, but it's also reality. That's just what it is. But I am back at a gallery. I do have small income through my fabrics, through selling my work occasionally, but no, I can't, like last a few months, I cannot do that full time. Somebody else needed me and I stepped in and that's basically what happened. Okay, but I have a question specifically. Okay, so let's say A, on the fabric stuff. So you design these fabrics, you work as a co-designer with these uh, indigenous people in their communities, whether it's in the Czech Republic or in India, in creating these designs. But then do you do you actually like create something with the fabric or do you just like sell the fabrics both there's a line of things that we've been doing bags i also collaborate with another visual artists in czech republic and here in the us and in india we did a series of dresses with hanka poislova i mean i just supplied fabrics and she did the dresses and we did performances with other visual artists and theater and performance artists to show that the fabrics can be used in variety of clothing, but we also did bags. I used the fabrics in the furniture. So there's really a variety where the fabrics can be used. And I think that's my goal for future to really show that, that these fabrics that are sourced, in my opinion, more ethically, because they bring two communities together or two individualities, not individualities, but really communities together, the community of block printers with all their culture and intellectual knowledge and ownership of the craft. And me as a, somebody who brings them together with or bridges two worlds. So I wanted to show that these fabrics can be, or fabrics can be done in this way with the respect of the community that actually owns the craft intellectually and culturally. It's a UNESCO uh, World Heritage sort of thing, right? Well, that's for the blueprint. Yes, the blueprint as a technique was recognized and a few and the workshops in Central Europe or Eastern Europe, they were recognized as holders or carriers of this craft. Yes, block printing is a whole world there are so many techniques and so many specific places where it's being done. And while there are some similarities, there are also big differences. So let's say Czech Republic and Moravia has two workshops that are working with specifically blueprint. One is in Oleśnice, another one is in Strážnice. What are the names of these places, do you know? So one is Danzinger in Oleśnice. And then Strážnice, you will know them as a Strážnický modrotisk. I do not personally know them, but <laughs> yeah. I will look them up afterwards. Yes, and I can also send you a few links. And then in India, block printing is typical for in many areas. But I've been specifically working with workshops in Bagru, which is a 
community or village not far away from Jaipur, capital of Rajasthan, and it's well known for use of natural dyes. So while blueprint in Czech Republic and Olesnice are resist print in Bagru, we are working not only with resist, but with also drag printing, natural dyes and, and other techniques. So it's a, it's, a, it's a whole world that you can you know get into once and never leave. Oh, as any specialization, you know, there's an entire industry in that by itself. But you brought up the terms ethical, ethically, things like this, and this seems to be something very important to you. But could you define that sort of thing? That's a very, to me, that's a very broad thing because, like, I jokingly said on another podcast, like, uh, you know, a collector being ethical is a collector that would not fly in their private jet, but instead, you know, fly commercial, like that's ethically going to an art fair. So I think yours is a little different than that. So give us a little context for that. I would say respecting all the stakeholders and everybody involved, but everybody means also the environment. It's not only individuals. It's, it's also untangible things like environment, culture, history, intellectual property. So I would say ethical to me means with respect of all these st- stakeholders, tangible and untangible. And how do you, um, not maintain, but how do you practice that in your own creative practice? It's learning it's never ending learning process and it's questioning your own practice all the time okay well i'll question your approach then how about this so i did try to do some research on you before we got on and i found that you've done sculpture painting fabric work producing things with fabric and a cookbook Yes, and I also done photo, sound, video, installations, all these things, yes. Okay, but the, the question I have about that, though, is because, like, okay, I come from a very particular time period and a very particular educational structure, America in the 90s and early aughts, and they were always saying, like, find a medium, find a thing, find a style, a signature look or whatever, and have that be your thing, and you seem to have run the opposite direction from that yes that's true because to me as i said before the art is about exploring and growth and doesn't matter what media it is it's really more about the idea behind and sometimes the media that i'm using is not a right for or that i'm that i would to use before is not a right one to express what I'm really thinking or what I am exploring or what I want to say. So I really guess I'm in this sense a multimedia artist or I can I see, I always write in my resumes, a multimedia artist, blah, 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 you know, whatever it means. But it's truly something that represents me because there's not a single media that I stuck to and I worked with. Well, but then the lead, the, the then question that lends into is like, has that been beneficial or detrimental to your career? I don't know. I don't know. I think, I think let's ask it again in 40 years. Okay. We'll mark the date. No problem. <laughs> because I think it's a lot about, I mean, there are women, there are artists who were, who were coming to the recognition at the end of their life. I think it's not even about that. It's more about continuing working. I mean, there are people who worked, women who worked in Invisible, they were recognized, like Lee Montico, she was recognized and then she disappeared and then she was recognized again, or Le Bourgeois, or, I mean, that's okay with me as long as I keep working. Okay, so the term invisibles come up a couple of times. I know you have an interest, or maybe not interest is a bad way of phrasing it, but like a, um, advocacy for women and in the arts so you know how is that manifesting how are you doing that i know you have recently been working at a a gallery that represents primarily women artists so like tell me a little bit more about this i'm gonna act the fool in this you know being a white man kind of thing so like educate me please i worked for 11 years and now i'm getting 
back at the Anita Shabolsky Gallery, which is a small gallery on Upper East Side. It was established in 1982. And it's one of these New York little gems, New York little gallery that is not in the mainstream, but continues independently showing what it decided to show, which is in this case, 50s and 60s abstract expressionist, New York School of Abstraction. And Anita is not showing only women, but she continues tradition of women dealers and gallerists like Marta Jackson or Betty Parsons. She is devoted to a certain period of the 50s and 60s and and I like that she never gave up. Like it's some of these artists are, I mean, all of these artists are contemporaries of big names like Jackson Pollock or Clifford Still. And they were friends many times, but they didn't make it to the way, to the top, all the way to the top. But they're still, their work is still very, very important part of the period of the certain era. And what is art? Art is really representation of a certain period and more voices we can hear or more people we can see it gives more complex image of a certain area so i'm in love with these artists i'm in love with their work i can see their careers few times i had to photograph the work or not had to but i photographed the work when they were at the end of the life or they passed away i had the honor to photograph the work and catalogize it and I think that also changed a little bit my perspective on an art world. I think what's important in that these people kept creating and they kept growing and they have some strong work and some less strong work, but don't we all? And so as for the gallery, so the gallery works with a certain era and thanks to that, I could see in-depth lives and work of many artists and of the certain area. And, you know, now is a one of the artists once in a while comes into auction or, or is all visible and another gallery takes them over and, and starts pushing their work more. But they were all, to me, important artists of that period. I guess the question that I am thinking in my head is like, how does it feel like, because I see these like memes about like, you know, there are lots of famous women artists, but only after they're 80 years old or only after they're dead, all this kind of stuff. Like now I'm a man. I don't know. You know, I've got my own opinion on that. How does that feel for you? Oh, yeah. Now I remember your initial question to educate you as a male. So what I want to say is that certain support community is very important and i think we sometimes have to stick together and and help each other as women and and in a in a male dominated world so i really respect anita for pushing for these artists but especially for women artists and i feel that without community and without helping each other it's it's really hard to make so i think yes we need in a male-dominated art world, we need we need helping each other. And that's how I feel. Like, I feel that without community, I would be lost. I would be much... I mean, because I have a good community around me from from either Academy of Fine Arts or from, from Hunter College here, or even from other women that, that I met through my life, I am happy with not being in a center or, or being invisible because I can always get feedback. I, I can always talk to other women artists whom I respect or women or even men, but I feel that the certain sensitivity that women put into their art is, is very important to me and I rely to it. So I feel that I am lucky by having a great community and we were great here at Hunter College and I'm still in touch with a lot of my classmates. I have to say that it was a good year and people like Jody Linky Chow who is now quite visible is one of my close friends or Kathleen Vance who is behind Front Gallery on, on Lower East Side. 
are, are really, I'm, I'm grateful that I can be in touch with them and I can always call them. It's like, hey, what do you think about this piece? Like, what do you think? Would you like to give me a studio visit? So yeah, it's a good, it's a good community. Okay, wait. So that no, I, I'm fascinated. There's a little bit, you just mentioned like studio visits in New York. How is that working these days? <laughs> <laughs> well, so right now I'm part of the small show called Growth, which is at the Rombus Place based in Brooklyn. So we, it's, a, it's online like everything else. And like yesterday we had a Zoom studio visit. So the, we put Katerina Lanfranco, also my friend and classmate, put who, is, who established this space, put together a group of artists and what I like about her concept is that she invited artists who invited other artists. So that's a good way how to grow the community now to also bring the work that you would maybe not pick up as a curator in the first place. And I think everybody benefits from that. So she put together this show, which is online, and organized some events around it, like Zoom meetings, a Zoom walk through the studio or a live Instagram walk through the studio. And things like that so that's how it works and also i used to have studio in prague then i used to have studio in long island city where it was still industrial before gentrification again here we go with gentrification things in new york change very quickly and now for past month and a half i'm again lucky enough to have a studio in bronx which I'm fascinated by, and I am falling in love with it. Again, the mixture of industrial and residential before developers step in and start tearing down the small factories and change everything into candles. So it's sort of like a wave that we have to ride. And artists always, you know, at the beginning, and then, and, and then there's a big wave that takes over. Yeah, it's true everywhere. Every city I've ever lived in, I mean, whenever the artists move into a neighborhood, then it becomes attractive to the next group of people. And then slowly, it gets, well, sometimes quickly, it gets very gentrified. But artists seem to always be the first. Like we're the ones, we're the catalysts. Yes. And I've seen it in Dumbo and I've seen it in Long Island City. And now let's see how long Bronx, or at least this part of Bronx where I am, will last. Okay, got a question. I want to go back to something cookbook <laughs> tell me a little bit more about that that was a part of my graduate project at hunter college and it sort of was escalation of several things that i was going through so number one i was working in a bar in lower east side as i mentioned illegally and i was seeing all these young people just going there and sitting all day and drawing and doing nothing and i was like oh my god like where do they get a the time to do all that number two was i just could not meet anybody in new york because i was all the time working and the only people that i was meeting or prospective partners were drunken guys from the bars around and i was like oh my god where do i meet somebody before I, I went to New York, I spent a lot of time in Finland. It's a country that is very, very close to my heart. And I wanted to go back to Finland. So I sort of put together, oh, and then there was a fourth aspect, which was a dream project or dream thing. So all this put together created a cookbook, which was a performance piece. I put together an ad looking for ideal guy. And the question was, who is an ideal guy in New York? Is it a tall, blonde, dark, rich, old, young? There were so many opportunities. I mean, there were so many possibilities, right? But with my fascination of Finland, I put together an ad for a Sami guy who was, so let's say there are 150,000 Sami people in the world. So how many? Hold on, wait. Wait, what, a Sami guy? What? Sami, indigenous group of people from Northern Europe, Finland, Sweden, Russian, Russian Peninsula. So I was always fascinated by them. And as I said, I spent a lot of time in Finland and my dream was to go and work in, I love winter and I just wanted to go to the, to the northern part of Finland and work there. I had also a close friend who married you know, somebody of Sami's descent and whose mother was a storyteller from Sami community. 
And so I sort of put together this dream project of me finding a Sami guy in New York. My heritage is Finnish, if that means anything. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I love it. It's the kindest people that I know. I will be visiting Norway and Iceland soon, so hopefully I'll get to know some people from that region. And I had a guest many very early on the podcast from Finland, and it was a fabulous conversation, very fascinatingly. Very beautiful people. Not only beautiful people, but amazing government support for the arts. That Holy is also very shit. true. Yes, yes. She, she was she was complaining. Okay, like so this is her complaint. She goes... Yeah, the government only pays for my studio and my art supplies. It's a very different story to be an artist in what? in Finland. That's insane. Like that, that I know, she was complaining I know. that that's all they pay. I'm like, what else are they supposed to pay for? Like that you've got <laughs> everything. You've got art supplies and a studio paid by the government. Why I mean, are you complaining? They have their their own issues, but it's a beautiful country, very creative people, the sweetest people I know, and I miss it, and I miss my friends in Finland, where I also studied and did some art residencies and exhibited. But that's a whole different story. So back to the cookbook. We'll put so, a pin in that, though. I want to come back to that. So right after I got Fulbright scholarship, I actually was at a residency several months residency in Rauma in Finland. That's why sort of the Sami project was a continuation of my work in Finland. And so to concentrate all these different directions that I was going and all these different ideas and all these different things that were happening around me and in my life, it ended up in a cookbook, which was represented. So the the simple idea behind that was a girl is looking for a guy in New York how to represent that, how to put it together. So there was several months taking performance where I put an ad onto Craigslist and the ideal guy was represented by the Sami people because it's a very narrow group of people. And I just needed to make it very specific to make the subject of my search very specific and I was getting the responses and meeting the guys and then another question was what is the best representation of the person that you are meeting and you know nothing about so I asked them for recipes of their ideal food and then I invited my single girlfriends and we were cooking these recipes and just talking about it so it was a whole conversation piece on on both sides and the whole performance was put together in a book that I published in 2007 that is actual cookbook with 12 recipes and 12 guys whom I met I mean there's some editing done to it and it took a few months not everybody made it to the to the cookbook not all the recipes were there but that's what happened when you put together frustration from uh, underpaying job and being alone in in the city and a dream and a multicultural environment all right and now go back to residencies i love the idea of residencies i think they're absolutely magical now of course i hate the ones where they like make you pay for stuff oh my god it's ridiculous right like they should not even be there they should not exist to me, that's just like, that's a money grab. That's not a residency. Residency is... Yeah, it's the same with galleries that, that are exhibitions that ask you to submit the work with a payment. Oh my God, like, that's like, get rid of these. This is ridiculous. And I never, never, never apply for anything like that because it's it's just, it's just turning everything into an industry. It already is an industry. I know, they're, but they're just okay. enforcing, reinforcing that idea it is is, it's the like if they could remove money from the art world the art world would be magnificent and i believe that i mean that's my whole idea i i don't really i i never sign up for money and art together in the same line and that's maybe my problem oh no it's all of our problems why i don't pursue it more but i am idealist in this i really believe that that money and art should not be in the same on on the same line 
Well, like, I'm a huge fan. I wish that I could barter for everything. Like, if I could trade my artistic abilities or my artistic, you know, works or whatever it was for my dentistry and my mortgage, like, I would be in heaven. That would be magnificent because to me, then it's just a, you know, a equal trade of appreciation of, hey, thanks for the the house and I'll give you this this art. But like as soon as money gets involved, whether it's in residencies or these competitions you enter in galleries or whatever, it becomes too much of a an industry thing because like then like if it's a gallery and let's say they're running a competition and it costs $25 to enter, all they care about is the volume of people entering, not the quality of people entering. And to me, that's a big problem. I totally agree. And I think we are the same generation. I'm 46, so... I'm 47. Okay, so yeah, here we go. And I've seen... I mean, I've seen so much in the art world. I've seen, and especially through the work for the gallery and going to art fairs, etc. Uh, et I mean, I've seen things that should not be there and things that should have been there. And I mean, it's a, it's such a mess. So I, I really am doing everything to stay away from that and not to make me depressed or not to be dragged into it at the same time, maintaining my work and my development. It's really hard though, because like there, there's so many different avenues to it. Like on the one hand, you go to an art fair, there may be some magnificent works that are incredibly inspirational that you're like, holy shit, that should be in a museum. And then on the flip side of that, at the same art fair, there could be crap that you're like, oh my God, that's the kind of shit I made before I even went to art school. Like it's just horrible, uneducated, un poorly poor craftsmanship poor you know, the the scope and range of stuff and and yet somehow they all seem to like make it and i don't understand it like I, this is sort of like one of my big frustrations that sort of led me to creating this podcast is i don't understand how the art world works because like some people that have no talent can be quote unquote successful and some people with amazing talents never get success. Yes, and I can see it at the gallery where I worked and I think it helped me a lot to see things in a perspective that I'm going back to it again. What's important is just to keep going and keep creating and, and put all this behind you and because there's no, you can't, there's no logic there's no, you can't, there's no way. There's I no, want logic. <laughs> I Some, know, I know I we want, do. Want I want an Excel spreadsheet that somebody tells me, like, if you do this, 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 and this, you will be successful. Like, whatever that is. Like, there could be a hundred different Excel spreadsheets depending on your medium or your subject matter. I don't care. But I'm so tired of, like, the entire arts industry is based, as far as I can tell, on who you know. That's why I think it's important to just stay happy within yourself and, and keep going. And I know it's it sounds idealistic, but how else do you make a sense of it? Like it's it's real it's about why did you decide to do art? You decided like what were the what were the original reasons to create an art? And I guess just you just need to stick with that. Well, see, my reason for doing art is a stupid, horrible reason, which is I got to a university with the intention of studying a particular major, and they said, oh, we don't offer that major. And I literally just sitting in there in the counselor's office, I said, fuck it, I'll just take art. <laughs> there. That's a, okay, that's interesting. So that's how I And that's, that's my how it was. And at me, for me, I was, I think, five years old, and I said, oh, my God, I want to be an artist. And there was nobody in my family who was an artist, and, and it was a deep communism. And, and I mean, my path was so complicated, and so many times people told me, you cannot do art. You, you can't be this. You can't be that. I was like, fuck it. It's just, of course I will do. I will do what I want. And I just continued doing what I want. And, yeah. I, I heard so many times, oh, no, you cannot paint, and no, you cannot do sculpture, no, no, you should rather get married. And it's like, fuck them all, fuck it all, just let me just do what I want. My parents, like, they didn't actively encourage me not to be an artist, but they sort of passively did it because cause my father actually went to school and he got his undergraduate in, 
I think just art or painting. I forget what it was. And then he decided that it wasn't for him, like, because he learned about the industry of the arts. And he was like, I want nothing to do with that. And he ended up going into the ministry. But so he sort of was always sort of like, yeah, it's it's a nice idea and it's a lot of fun. But like the industry is the thing that crushes the spirit of the creative person. So like being a creative person, absolutely magical, romantic, beautiful, you know, inspirational in many ways. However, it's the business of it side of it that just like crushes us all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I I guess I always relied on something else for income. And I actually studied economic school as a high school and it helped me. I didn't get into art until in my twenties. I never had any support. And when I was 18 years old, I started going and started drawing among these like seven and eight years old children and 13 and 14 years old kids. And I was like, oh my God, these kids are like, they're already shaped to be artists. And I'm coming here as an adult next to these kids who were pushed because of their talent. And, and I sort of started on my own. But I mean, I don't regret anything. But what I want to say is that it helped me actually to have a background in, in something else and something more more tangible. So when I started working at a gallery on every side, it helped me to have to know how to do spreadsheets and how to do you know Photoshop and Illustrator and be capable of doing also office work for for the gallery and not only I mean what creative work is there. I was helping with catalogs and and, and creating an exhibition, but but initially to have one foot on the ground and have experiences in certain business management or spreadsheet creation or office creation helped me to maintain this work. Oh, yeah. I mean, as a professor, I always tell my students, I'm like, you know, being creative, having good craftsmanship, having good ideas, all this kind of stuff, all very important. But the most important thing is to have a good foundation of running a business. Because no matter how much, like so a lot of us creative people, we, we go to being creative because we're like, fuck the, the corporate world, fuck the business world. I don't want to be any part of that. I want to do sort of things my way and in my own whatever. But they, what you don't understand these days, now, because maybe it was different 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but these days being an artist is a business. And that's, that's the fact. Sad but true. <laughs> I don't even know what the situation in MFA programs is right now. I have no idea. I'm so detached from it. Oh, MFA programs, as far as I know, other than like Yale, which of course, you know, pumps out the best of the best or the ones that are assumed to be the best of the best. The, the I mean, they're just uh, f creating the next generation of teachers is really all that an MFA program does, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, th that's why I went. So like, I'm not knocking it, but like I went to be, because I wanted to be a professor, but a lot of, a lot of the artists that go as to get their MFAs, like there was no reason for them to get their MFAs. I mean, MFAs to me is pretty much just for either teachers or for the connections like you know if you go to yale mfa there's a very specific career track that you're creating by doing that i think from this perspective i'm totally over educated artist with two mfas and one phd and <laughs> and, and and i'm still sitting here and creating very quietly my work all right, well, let's sort of wrap this up a little <laughs> bit. It's and, and no way. Okay, are there any topics that we haven't talked about that you'd like to talk about, or anything you want to expand on that we, I didn't give you enough time to expand on? I think I would say that past year was a mess, and it still continues, and we sort of had to find a way how to survive it. For me, creativity can represent itself in many different ways. And I love cooking. I mean, just the cookbook. And I also love people. And I am generally fascinated by children and their energy. So for me, last year was a lot about these three things. I became perfect Indian wife. My husband never had such amazing Indian food. I was 
cooking everything from top of my head and part of my creativity went to that actually and it made me happy the same was i think with my children i made very sure that they have very positive good year despite the fact of being at home and being cut away from their friends physically and from the school and I think these are all part of creativity and I think that's why I see myself as a multimedia artist because I put myself into these different activities that I find highly, highly creative. And that's maybe why also my practice is all over the place because I really, it's not about what is the piece, it's what is the process. Okay, but wait, I've got a question because I always wonder this about artists, especially like because you're saying like, oh, we'll see how it goes in 20 years. Let's see if people find my work in 20 years. How are you storing all this work? <laughs> <laughs> so I do drawings. So drawings are easy, right? It's a flat files. A lot of work ends up in photography. So that's also easy. That's a digital file that can be printed out. I created neons, but I mean, I have many ideas, so neons will come again when there is a time. Fabrics are relatively easy as well, and I think that's what brought me to fabrics, the, the fact that I was getting too many paintings and sculptures in my studio. I was like, damn it, where am I supposed to store this place? Also, to store these things, and also because I am really between continents. Like I, have a, I still have work in Finland stored in my friend's place, and I have things in Prague, and I have things in India, and I have things in New York. And they got all over, and I was like, damn it, like this is ridiculous. I'm just a... I'm just leaving things behind and it's annoying. It's annoying for people that are storing them and it's annoying for me. So I think that's also one of the reasons why I got more and more towards fabric that is relatively easy. It can be printed. We can print only what we want. Also, that's why I like slow process and a small factory setting and on-demand fabrics. So we basically store, or I basically store the patterns and the ideas, but we make them when we need to. Okay, wait. Now, I've actually been to India, and I've been to some of these block printing places. Now, when you say the word factory, are, do you literally mean a, like a, a like industrial factory, or do you mean like a bunch of tables where people just are hand printing them. Like, so it's I'm, a bunch of tables, of course. But uh, let's say if we if we think about workshops in Oleshnice or Strážnice. So Oleshnice is much more industrialized. I mean, Strážnice, Strážnický Modrotisk is a much more industrial, I mean, still family-based workshop, but it's much more industrialized space with two big tables and a process that is allowing bigger production, while Oleshnice is a one little tiny table and one person from Danzinger family, Yuri Danzinger, who is doing the work, you know, slowly and by himself. And when we talk about India, I, or Bagru specifically, it can be Sushila, who has, a, I don't know how many, like five tables on a roof where we did the workshops or she initially had one then two tables and i think they they've grown a little bit or it can be her cousin or neighbor who has only one table on the roof or on the ground floor of her house so these are all family-based workshops so factory is not a not a right word thank you for correcting me well you know like i'm american when i think factory i think like conveyor belts and large no, 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 steel no, no, no. products of doing things you know yeah. okay yes. so, so it's a it's a workshops family-based workshops okay side note india my absolute favorite food from india and i know you're probably going to hate me for saying this is naan oh no 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 naan is like we are naan is just running through this family this family is running through naan like crazy i think every day do you have a good recipe for making naan at home no luckily whole foods and other places are doing nuns that are excellent, and I'm just buying them. But I can give you a lot of recipes. My husband likes the whole family, loves rajma. And just this morning, I was making another two, three meals because my husband's nephew is also living with us. And now I am cooking, cooking, cooking all the time, and I am just making everybody happy, I hope. 
Oh yeah, I lived in the Middle East for six years, and so like I got a lot of the biryanis and the, all that kind of stuff. So like, yeah, but naan is the one. Not oh no, you know, you probably know my favorite beverage in the world, karak. Okay, so at this family, they love this family loves rajma, bindi, dal, obviously. Karela, which is a very, very specific, it's a type of melon. It's a very... You don't do karak? I don't do karak, no. Oh, I love karak. <laughs> it's so good. I mean, I, do, I do lassi. Okay, that's fine. Oh, well, that's I'll, right. I'll, I'll, I'll look it up for you. I'll, I'll, I'll make it sometime. Oh, no, uh, I can make it. I know, I've already got the recipe. <laughs> no, no, I got the recipe. And I'm the only one in my family that drinks it, so... Yeah, nobody drinks it here. But what yeah. really helped me a few years ago when I was doing my research, I sent my kids to a school one summer to school in India. I think they loved me that summer because they were in 11 months in three schools on three continents. And I don't think that they want to do it again, ever. They were still small and they were obedient. I think now it's not going to happen again. But because they were three months in school, in hardcore school in Jaipur, where they had to eat in a school cafeteria. They got very, very tolerant, or they are not screaming no at me when I when I give them different Indian food. So that was very, very helpful. And they, they grow their palate, and they can tolerate a lot of food. Marvelous. All right. So let's wrap this up. I have two questions that I ask everybody mm -hmm. at the end, which one is... Could you name for me three sort of what I would call noteworthy people that are somehow inspiring you or you're engaged with at the current moment? Artists. So, artists. Oh, I would say I have to name again my boss, Anita Shapolsky, although she's not an artist, but I do respect her and her work that she's doing with artists. And I, through her, I met many amazing artists, women and male who are unfortunately dying or are dead. And I know we talked about it. I One of our artists just passed away due to COVID complications. And it's very sad because there's a whole generation of women artists and artists in general who are disappearing. Sometimes I feel that we didn't even notice them and now we are losing the possibility to, to notice them and to be aware of them. And I think it's sad because things are really, really uh, disappearing very quickly, more than, than we want. That's somebody I would like to mention. I also am very grateful to my classmates and friends from New York and from Prague as well, whom I respect for being in touch, number one. Number two, for keeping working. And it's a whole whole group. Uh, I know that you mentioned TART when we talked. So TART was, I mean, it's not in existence anymore, but TART was a female collective that established at Hunter College. And for many years, I was a member of it. And it really helped me a lot during the especially when I finished the school. We did a bunch of studio visits, exhibitions together. We published few zines, and it was a really, really important support structure. And I would recommend to everybody or to people, young people from MFA programs to create structure like this. It doesn't really take much, but I think it helped enormously. Even few years can make a difference. A few years after you finish the school, when you suddenly disappear from that feedback that you're getting and, and you're on your own, I think that helps a lot. So although it's not in existence, I would mention that. I would like to mention it because it's very important. So it will start. <laughs> and, oh my God. And then I would like to mention also women artists who were not trained in art field but they reinvented themselves and they are creating one of them is my dear friend samantha Bartamehta. we are together an exhibition another one would be jody lingi chow who is my my dear friend but in general i would say don't give up 
<laughs> and I respect them for not giving up, for reinventing themselves, for, for continuing creating and for finding support structures and ways how they are and we are together through this. All right. And you sort of started to do it, but the last question is generally any, any advice for the sort of the next generation on ways that they could do things easier, better, whatever, like, you know, like my big one is, is find a, find a community and stick with it instead of making my mistake, which was moving too much and not keeping in touch with people, which seems to be the opposite for you. You seem to have been very good at that. And I'm slightly envious of that. Yeah, I am moving, but really New York is my home. Like I, I work in India and I work in Czech Republic, but New York is my home. And because I went through the grad school here and because I stayed in New York, it allowed me to stay in touch with my friends and my classmates. So my big community is really here from my classmates and friends that were part of my MFA education. So although I moved and I worked, I mean, I'm still in touch with my friends from Academy of Fine Arts as well in Czech Republic, or even friends from Finland where I went, went as exchange student as well. So I think it's about honesty a lot, like being not, again, not putting your ego in it and just be very honestly friendly and able to do things for each other without any drama and any unnecessary ego that you you put in and and power game and and all these things so i would say just forget all this and just be genuine and genuinely work and create and like people it's it's just very funny to me to hear you say this because I don't know where I got the idea. Maybe it was TV, movies, books, whatever, this sort of romantic, you know, individual artist in their studio toiling over their blah 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 bullshit, smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee all day. But it, I've learned as, of course, I've gotten older, wiser, had more experiences that, I mean, it, the arts is not a solo practice. Now, maybe the art of making your work is a solo thing, but like, but then it becomes part of a community as soon as you as soon as you show it to somebody else because there's that need of peers there's that need of feedback there's that need of curators there's the need of gallerists there's there are all these people that end up becoming the network that builds your career that if you do not have them you're kind of just making art in a studio and that's it you, like you'd really need those people and you're also not working in a vacuum. And I think one of the big difference that was when I studied more traditional or more classical education or, or approach in Academy of Fine Arts, at least in the restoration and figurative sculpture. And then I went to MFA program at Hunter College. And I'm really lucky to have experience from both education system. I think one of the striking difference was that here at Hunter College, the first thing or one of the first thing that you learn was that everything's political. Whatever you do is part of something. Like every, it's not a vacuum, right? It's a statement on something. Your work is not just aesthetical or empty thing. It's a part of the time. It's a statement on something, even if you are not aware of it. And I think that's the same for what you're saying. Like you don't create a vacuum. Like you create next to your peers you create next to their work like your work is coming from from somewhere and it's reaction to something well it's funny because i literally just had this conversation on the as with the previous guest which was that i often wonder like was i part of a movement that simply hasn't been named yet like like you know so when i think of work being political i think of like it, it it had a movement it had a reason it had an intention kind of thing so like was i part of that and like how many decades if not centuries is it going to take to sort of retroactively look back and say oh yes he was part of this thing like and whether or not i even was part of a thing who the hell knows it's, it's sort of sad like i wish during our lifetime that we could be sort of appreciated more than later in life or after our lives it might not even be named ever or or it might not even become visible 
or concentrated. It's like a, it's it's like a bunch of rivers or a bunch of, bunch of streams, and 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 some will disappear, and some will make it to the bigger stream and stronger stream, and and it's just we are all part of of that, and you know maybe whenever I give lectures or whenever whenever I do talk to other people as an educator or or whenever I do talk you know in public I'm always saying that you never know whom you touch you might say one thing and it might change somebody else's life work you know it can be miniature exchange that happens somewhere on a corner or or just outside of the main conversation and it can influence the other person in a way that will have a important influence on their career like you never know you never know whom you touch with with your words with your work you never know whom you inspire and i think we should not forget that we should not forget that it's not really only it's not only about us it's about people around us and to that i want to say that previous question i i need to name my friends in india who are helping me a lot with this project it's a Jeremy Fritz and, and Monica Moisin, and we are putting together initiative that will represent the women artists, Mohila Prince, Mahila Prince, and Mahila means woman. And so this is something that we are now going to push more, a label or initiative that will support, that is supporting the artisans, women artisans, and their design, not our design, their design that was created in collaboration with uh, different artists and designers. So we are in a process of inviting more artists, designers to collaborate with the women block printing artisans, give them their expertise, but push away their own ego and give the platform to these women and to the artisans. So that's something that I'm working on now and I had to name them because they're very, very important part and they're helping me a lot and we are sort of creating together so they can't be forgotten marvelous <laughs> well thank you very much thank you for this nice conversation the wise fool is supported in part by an eea grant from iceland Liechtenstein, and norway in an effort to work together for a green competitive and inclusive europe we would also like to thank our partners Hunt Kastner in Prague, Czech Republic, and Kunst Centrene i Norge in Norway. Links to EEA grants and our partner organizations are available in the show notes. <laughs>